Before we begin, a reminder that nothing on this podcast is intended as a statement of faith, doctrine, or fellowship, and this podcast is not affiliated with any church, school, or calling body. What's up, gents? My name is Charlie Ungemach, and you are listening to an episode of the Gird Up Broadcast. Now, the dudes are going to join me in just a minute, and we got a lot of great content coming your way. But before we do that, I just want to say thank you to all those who help support the Gird Up Project here. All of our content at Gird Up is available free to anyone anywhere in the world who might benefit from our message, and we want to keep it that way. But we also have to rely then upon the contributions of our listeners to do so. You'll never see any paywalls or exclusive content here at Gird Up. That being said, it does cost us money to put a show like this together. So if you find what we're doing here valuable and you enjoy the broadcast and you're willing and able to do so, please go to www.girdupministries.com, click on the menu, and select Buy Us a Cup of Coffee. That $5 donation goes a long way towards keeping this podcast going, and it helps us reach and minister to many more men just like you. Hope you enjoy the broadcast today. Let's get to it. Gentlemen, welcome to the Gird Up Podcast. My name is Charlie Ungemach. This is the third of our three Advent um, kind of devotional podcasts, if you will, for the 2023 Advent season. I am joined once again by Isaiah Duff, better known as Izzy. <laughs> Duffers, <laughs> not not better known Dan as Izzy. Wessel. I like Duffers. Duffers. Duffers is a good one. Works. Duffers is good. And Jacob Klug. Jacob. All right, awesome. Glad to have you guys on again. So we this is our third one. Um, the first one we drank. What did we drink for the first one? Glühwein. Oh, Glühwein, and we talked about Isaiah sixty-one. Correct. No, that was last 64. week. Sixty-four. Sixty-four. Okay. Um, and now this and um and the uh, oh Antiphon was Adonai. All right, so the Tetragrammaton, the name for God. Last week it was Isaiah sixty-one. We talked about the Key of David. And we drank coquito, which is like Puerto Rican eggnog, which is very, very sweet but delicious. Isaiah really liked that one. All right. And now this week, we are drinking good old-fashioned wassail, all right? Good old-fashioned wassail. So um, wassail, first of all, you guys have had a couple sips of it. What do you think? It's fantastic. It It is very heartwarming it during is. a cold time of year. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's already warming my face a little bit too, which is fantastic. But uh, the word wassail comes from the old Norse greeting vasheil, which roughly translates to be in good health. Later, as Danish and Anglo-Saxon cultures began to meld together in the British Isles, it became a drinking formula, vasheil drinkhale, which means drink and be of good health. So if you're a fan of like the Last Kingdom or any of those old um, Viking stories, that's about the the time that we're talking about there where Danish and British culture, or Anglo-Saxon culture are coming together. Uh, the drink itself, wassail, traditionally is made from a mulled cider made with sugar, cinnamon, ginger, and nutmeg, topped with slices of toast as sops and drunk from a large communal bowl. Um, the soap, or the toast, soap, the toast <laughs> sops were actually offered to, um, like, tree fairies as sacrifices back in the day. 
Um, you've probably heard of the tradition of wassailing in, or caroling in England. This comes from an ancient pagan tradition in Wales and Cornwall of parading around singing around the solstice in order to awaken the tree spirits in the apple orchards. Um, the, when these areas were converted to Christianity, the tradition of wassailing was continued progressively transitioning to primarily Christmas carols instead since they were um, since it was around the solstice it's pretty close to Christmas anyway um, and so um, an example of one of those famous Christmas carols would be the 16th century Gloucestershire 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 wassail or carol which says wassail wassail all over the town our toast it is white and our ale it is brown our bowl that is made of the white maple tree with a wassailing bowl will drink unto thee. Very cool. I, it's delicious. It's nice and tart. Mm -hmm. um, very, very drinkable. It's good. It, this just, it, it, it feels like exactly the right thing. Yeah. You just, you get by the fire, you cuddle up, you, you drink this, and you just, just have a pleasant time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's. It's cold outside, but nice and warm in here, too. We got a little fake fire going, candles lit, all the good stuff. Yeah, it's perfect. Um, so this one I made with Strongbow dry cider and then uh, sliced up a whole, a whole orange, put it in there, um, five cinnamon sticks. Um, didn't have any cloves, and I didn't really want to buy a whole thing of cloves just for one recipe, so I didn't put any cloves in. Uh, but then also a uh, big old ginger root threw that in there, sliced it up a little bit like into chunks and threw that in there as well. Absolutely delicious. Yeah, I might have to make it for Christmas now. It's good. It's good. I think it's kind of interesting that, like they sang to the tree spirits, there are tree spirits in, like, every ancient religion. Like, the centrality of the tree spirit is remarkable. And I think that's curious because of the Garden of Eden and the centrality of the tree of life and what happens with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's like something, it's like we know, like humans know, that something big happens with with the tree. It is interesting. It is interesting. But then even the idea that, like, the seasons and the growing season and things, there's something supernatural going on. Something is making these things sprout and grow. Yeah, like they know it's, like, without... God's help, whoever God is, the apple orchard isn't going to produce well. It's also one of those things where uh, it, it's been shown, I'm not going to remember any of the spe specific statistics, but that uh, seeing trees helps your mental health. It makes people feel more secure. And that if you go a long time without being outside or seeing trees, that actually starts to unravel your mental health, like any a number of other things that do that. But it's interesting that trees have a soothing effect. I hadn't really thought about this until you said that, but I spent some time out in Nebraska, like up in the Sand Hills this summer, mm -hmm. and about I don't know, about a, a little over a week, and there are just no trees. Like there's some, uh, oh, what do you call it? Um, what do you make the like linen closets out of? Um, what do you make a linen closet out of? Yeah. There's a special wood you make linen closets out of. Mahogany. Um, cedar. There's like big cedar bushes. Um, cedar, like bugs don't like cedar, so you make your linen closet out of cedar. Oh. 
Anyway, fascinating. Um, there's like cedar bushes that they refer to as trees, but they're not really trees on some of the ridge tops. But there are no trees. There just aren't trees. And it was uncanny and a little bit. I, I wasn't comfortable with it. First of all, because I didn't know. I was having a hard time telling directions and things without trees on the, on the horizon. But there was something more to it than that. I wonder if maybe that was part of it. It's the first time I've ever been somewhere where there really aren't trees. Because even out in like L.A., when I spend time out there, there's at least palm trees and things like that. So, so interesting. Prof Schutze is kind of like the resident mental health expert on campus. He's the counseling prof for those of you listening. And it, it's kind of funny because he, he loves trees. He's planted like dozens of trees here on campus and like cared for trees and cultivated the the arboretum here and he just he's all in on mental health and he's all in on trees and that's even one of the things he says look at the trees brothers look at the treetops but with that when when he says that if i remember correctly that's more in, in the context of look up because that's where jesus will come from but even so look at the trees Awesome. I like it. All right. As we drink, of course, we're reminded of, uh, so <laughs> the, uh, I am very, very excited. We had a little bit of extra money in our classroom coffee account, um, for my classroom here at the seminary. And so we got really good Christmas themed coffee for the nice. last week of school. And we started drinking that today and it is absolutely delicious. Oh, very, very good. Um, now that has nothing to do with this, but we do call our favorite kind of donation here a cup of coffee donation. If you would like to support what we're doing here at Gird Up, um, you can go online and make a donation there. We call it a cup of coffee donation because for the price of a cup of coffee, you can help support the ministry we're doing here with young men. If you would like to support or help fund the work we do here at Gird Up, go to www.girdup.com, select, select buy us a cup of coffee in the main menu, and make your donation there. All right, Isaiah, would you like to give us just a little rundown for anybody that missed the last two episodes? What is, the, What are the O antiphons? Certainly. So to, to briefly review that, an antiphon is a song that is sung back and forth. Either you can think of all kinds of responses that we, that we have in church where one person says one thing and then the congregation has a response or that type of thing. The O antiphons were used with vespers, meaning evening services, in the seven or eight days leading up to Christmas. They are called the O antiphons because it, they all start O, and then there's a name for Christ, and we're walking through these to reflect on what these names of Jesus mean for us. Awesome. Uh, so, like I said, two weeks ago we did the Tetragrammaton, which is the name for God, which is kind of lost to time, but often uh, used as either Jehovah or Yahweh, or um, in your Bible it's all capital letters, the Lord. Um, last week we talked about the key of David, and now this week our name for God is Emmanuel. So um, Isaiah is going to read it in Latin, and then I will read an English translation. O Emmanuel Rex et legefer noster, expectatio gentium et salvator earum, veni ad salvandum nos, Domine Deus noster. O Emmanuel, our King and our Lawgiver, the hope of the nations and their Savior, come and save us, O Lord our God. All right, let's start with the uh, start with the basics here. What does Emmanuel mean? 
God with us. <laughs> yes, Mr. Duff. Yes, Duffers. <laughs> Duffers nailed it. Okay, so uh, what about, let's dig into the Hebrew a little bit. Um, obviously, it's a Hebrew name for God. Uh, you want? Can you break that down off the top of your head? Or Well, that's the L at the end. So L shortened for Elohim, which probably sounds familiar. Um, Ale is also sometimes just the shortened form or word for God. That That is the general word. Um, so even like um, other words that are familiar to us, like Bethel is house of God, right? So this L, almost like suffix, will get brought onto words like it is here with Emmanuel. Yeah, so the, the word itself is straightforward. It, it, it is quite literally in Hebrew, im, with, then the new ending is us, so im, manu, is with us, and then el, manuel, God, with us. Uh, this name appears in Isaiah chapter 7 and then in Matthew chapter 1. So to jump into that, uh, to briefly set up the context, uh, so this is after the kingdom of Israel has been torn in two. So we've got northern, northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Uh, the northern kingdom has uh, uh, teamed up with the kingdom of Syria, also called Aram, to the north of them. And they are coming to pick on little Judah in the south. And Judah has been destroyed. They, ha they are losing the war badly. And now they're coming together. And the current king of Judah, uh, King Ahaz, is shaken. And so is all of Judah. And Isaiah comes to, to bring a message of hope. And so that's where in, let me find it, uh, in verse 10, Isaiah says, uh, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. So this is, this is an incredibly rare thing. God shows up to someone and says, ask for anything. This is like one of two times in history I can think of in the Bible that that actually happened. One is, of course, King Solomon, and uh, now we have King Ahaz. He gets this blank check from God. You can ask for anything. And Ahaz has the gall to say no. We know from context and later on, it's because it, it's kind of like if you were to put this in, in playground terms, like Judah is getting picked on by two bullies. So Judah decided that he was going to go find the biggest bully on the, the schoolyard and have him beat up his other two bullies because Judah will ask Assyria to come and beat up uh, uh, Aram and Israel which, which Assyria does, and, and then Assyria comes knocking, and that's a problem. So a after this high-handed rejection, nevertheless, God still has a, a promise, a word for Ahaz, and, and really for us. So that's where then in verse 13, then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore... The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child 
and will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. There we have it. Awesome. So what are the implications of referring to God our Savior, or Jesus? What are the implications of referring to our God as Emmanuel? I was thinking about all the different ways, and I mean like technically speaking at the moment, that God is with us, or how you could, you could consider God to be with Christians, right? So in, in one sense, you've got the God is with us as he proclaims his promises. Those promises remind us of his love. They are, in effect, his love. This is God being with us as we're in church or as we're talking about God's word. And then you've got God with us in kind of a all people kind of way. I think Acts 17, 27 and 28. Um, God did this so that they, meaning all people, would seek him and find him and perhaps reach out for him. For he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. So you got that that kind of like general way that God is kind of behind everything. And then you've got God with us in the sacrament and Lord's Supper. This is for you, this is given for you, this is Jesus here while we're while we're using it. And then you've got God with believers specifically, like your body, the temple of the Holy Spirit. I think Galatians two twenty. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And, last one, well, maybe not totally, but last one for now, is God is with us as he uses his masks, that is, fellow believers, to show love to us. So, that's kind of a technical look at it. There's probably much more to say. Well, uh, let me start by asking this. Which one of those um, do you think speaks to you the most? Right now, I would say in my evening prayers, I'm most like thankful for God within me. Um, that, that God within me is kind of a, a twofold thing. It, it is, because the Holy Spirit dwells within me, I know that within that package comes my right status with, with, with God. I am perfect. And then also that because God is within me, that God grants with and through that power that I might continue to to grow in my life <coughs> into maturity and righteousness. It's a, yeah, that's awesome. Um, <coughs> I also appreciate that you say daily evening prayers. I like that too. Um, it's also interesting that you talked about. Um, the masks God wears. Uh, can you say a little bit more about that? How does God show up for? Because well, you you, you kind of said um, in in the believers around us, right? Um, we can see him there. Yeah, I don't know for sure. Maybe Isaiah does. If it was Luther who first said that that God uses masks, but one of the things we believe about God that is that He's a hidden God. He doesn't reveal Himself in His full glory. Um, if He did that, we wouldn't be able to handle it. 
But what he does do is he works through means, through things like God's word and through people. And so when I'm being absolved or forgiven by someone, when I'm being cared for by someone, when I'm being chastised by someone, when someone's helping me, um, this is God's work. It, it is the person's work, but it, it, this is God's work. And, and it is God who establishes the, the home and the community. And so God has established the masks, if you will, the, the people, the faces who are going to bless me day in and day out. So right now I live in this wonderful community where God has placed all these masks, all these other men who are training for full-time service. But right now where we live as kind of our own community and um, this is one of the ways God is with me. I love it. Um, Can you maybe give an example just kind of for anybody that's having a hard time wrapping their head around that idea of um, God showing up in my life through other people. Can you maybe give an example? Yeah. Of what that might look like. Um, I think it was two years ago. I had heard some things that were kind of shaking my, my faith a little bit for whatever reason. And I was caught up in thinking about them and quite worried and just not handling the challenge to my faith well. I don't even remember what it was. But what I did, among other things, is I went to Isaiah's room here, and I told him what was going on. And then he did three things, I think. He told me what God's word said, so he reminded me of the truth, which strengthened me. He dealt with the... um, charges against my faith in a way that I hadn't thought about yet, which was helpful. And maybe this is the most important because I felt so like guilty and tied up about it and worried that maybe my faith was not right enough because of how I was feeling. He absolved me for my sin, seeing very clearly my contrition. And when he did all this, and I think of a few other friends who did something similar over, over the, 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 the days when that was troublesome. This is very clearly God's work. This is God using his servants to send them into your life for your own spiritual care. When we think about Christ Jesus as the master shepherd or pastor, it's because he's got all the pastors there are at his disposal. And those days it was the people he sent into my life, namely some of my friends. Another way to think about that would be, you know, regularly praying the Lord's Prayer, uh, give us this day our daily bread. God does not send manna out of the sky like he once did, but for the three of us here living on the seminary campus, uh, we have people like Jeannie in the cafeteria who make us wonderful food. And to the, the, the idea of the masks of God is it, it would be like if I were to wake up tomorrow morning, stomp out into the circle, shake my fist at God and say, why don't you give me food? 
and someone taps me on the shoulder and points at the cafeteria. That's the idea, is that God works through other people to, to provide for us, to take care of us, that you, n- no one is legitimate in saying that, that God hasn't done anything for them or anything like that, because God is working through everything around you. God is sustaining creation itself. If he were to withdraw his presence for a moment, the universe is done. It, it just ceases to exist. Have you, have you heard the joke about this, about the masks of God? So there's a hurricane and a lady is stuck on the roof, roof of her house, right? Not now you have heard it, it sounds like. And someone comes by with a, like a safety vehicle as the water's rising. And she's like, no, 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 God's, I've been praying. God's going to save me, right? And the water gets higher and then a boat comes and then like, hey, we're here to save you. And then she goes, oh, no, 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 God's going to save me. You know, and then and then a helicopter comes finally, you know, and, and they're like, hey, we're here to save you. And she says, no, God's going to save me. And then she she perishes because she, she can't stay, stay alive on, you know, with the water rising. She gets to heaven and God's like, what the heck? Like, I sent all these people to save you. And she's like, oh. I love it. I love it. And and, and, and I, I mean it's it's comically simple right um and kind of crazy to think that god would not use the people around us but at the same time mind bending that he does knowing myself the idea that someone else might look at me and say wow look what god has done in my life through him is astounding to me and i have a hard time believing it i think maybe that's why sometimes it's difficult to see um through the mask, if you will. Well, some of the most beautiful things that people do for each other are things done without anyone noticing, right? So when you're doing a good thing for someone that is beautiful, it'd probably be when you don't know it. Martin Luther has a a wonderful uh, way of describing that reality that uh, if, if we think of good works for the Christian being like fruit, it, it just, a tree produces fruit. Uh, Luther says, I, I don't see my fruit because if I saw it, I would eat it. <laughs> and your good works, your good fruits are for your neighbor, for your neighbor to eat that fruit. That is That's hilarious. why you don't get to see it. That's that is funny. such a Luther quote. If I saw it, I would eat it. <laughs> so true. I love it. Okay, now, one of my favorite things about these conversations between the three of us is I think we're really well matched as far as the way our minds work. And I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would I would estimate that I'm probably the most creative of the three of us. Um, Jacob certainly is a creative guy, but I think the, just the way my mind works. And so it's interesting that you guys both like went um, right to uh, like practical examples of, hey, here's God actively working in my life through communion. I through, did a technical analysis for yeah, goodness sakes. He literally <laughs> did a technical analysis, right? Um, so I didn't really think about that at all whatsoever. What did you, you think about? Yeah, so I'm I'm a meta-narrative guy, right? And I love that. And so uh, when I hear a name like Emmanuel and think about the idea that God is with me, what I see is the narrative throughout Scripture of um, our relationship with God throughout the whole span, right? And so you have... Long, very long story, very short, right? You have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. 
um, and they walk with God in the garden, right? And um, this is a little controversial, but I like the idea. Um, I'm in the camp of there's two two great things which glorify God, um, both the presence of Adam and Eve as his companions, if you will, not in the sense that we think of as as earthly companions, right, but literal companions of God, and then um, also the ability to glorify God by choosing not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? And um, when Adam and Eve then do eat from the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they are no longer allowed to, to eat from the tree of life and are separated, literally, physically separated from God. And uh, the story of the Old Testament, um, we see both God's longing to be united again with his people. You even see that in Jesus along the way. Um, but you see in Isaiah and Jeremiah in particular, and all all over the place, but particularly in Isaiah and Jeremiah, you hear God longing and pleading with the children of Israel, return to me, come back to me, right? Um, I, I've called you by name, you are mine. Um, you've dug your own cistern, cisterns, what don't even drink water? Did I not love you in your youth, you know? Um, and you see this narrative over and over again of God's people wandering and God longing for them to come back. And then when Jesus arrives, he is the word, made flesh and he then pierces the veil on Christmas and he appears in human flesh. He grows up as a man and he literally walks with his people again, but he had to descend to his people because his people couldn't rise to him, right? And so then Jesus walks among us, dies upon the cross, and um, when Jesus dies, the power of death is broken and now we will not be separated from God in eternity. And so Jesus literally walks with his people uh, physically, and now also um, his people can be with him in eternity. Now he pours out his spirit upon us, as he says in the upper room, right? In the, in the last couple chapters of John, he sends his comforter. That comforter remains with us. Um, the spirit of God lives within us, as Jacob pointed out. Um, and we eagerly await the day when he will return again, uh, riding on the clouds with his robe soaked in blood and the sword of the Spirit in his hand to take us to be with him in eternity. We just, uh, in, in our classes, I know you guys worked through this a couple of years ago, but in our classes we just uh, yesterday went through um, uh, Thessalonians or First Thessalonians 4, talking about um, being raised up to meet Jesus in the air. Right? What a beautiful moment, not just because I'm going to leave the turmoil and sadness and difficulty of this world behind, but that is the moment from then on I will no longer be separated from from the one who loves me uh, beyond beyond measure, right? And so the idea that God is with me um, takes on many different forms throughout the narrative. Um, and Jacob brought up a bunch of those different uh, concepts and ideas. Uh, but when you piece them together and take a look at the story, it makes it even more, I don't want to say even more impactful, because that, that indicates that perhaps it wasn't impactful to begin with. Um, it deepens your appreciation. It certainly does deepen your appreciation of um, not only is Jesus like, oh, Jesus is with me. He's in my heart, right? But it goes much further than that, much deeper than that. He's joined me in my manhood. Um, when he was separated, he traded his own life, the one thing without value, so that he might be restored to me and I to him. And now he is coming back so that I might be with him forever. One thing I love about that kind of meta narrative meta narrative way of looking at it is that every time God kind of pulls the veil back 
and shows up in the Old Testament, everyone freaks out. Like when he's on the mountain and everyone in the mountain shaking and there's the, the glory of God. Or when he goes past Elijah and Elijah's in the cave and he sees God's backside. Right. Or, or the, the visions that he allows Daniel to see or Ezekiel to see. Like these guys are these guys are God's prophet. They're pious men and they just can't they can't handle it. Something different needs to happen if God's going to be with people. And so you've got, you've got Jesus. Right. And uh, wanted to touch then on the other place Emmanuel appears in the New Testament, of course, which is in Matthew chapter 1, where the angel says to, to Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, thinking about the, the interplay between these two names, Emmanuel and Jesus, Jesus means Savior, or, or the, the Hebrew Yeshua would mean the, the salvation of the Lord. Uh, that that is what Jesus came to do, is to save sinners. And then we can think of the name Emmanuel as the means. How does God save sinners? By being with them, by taking on their flesh. So that this, this name, we can think of myriad ways that God is with us. But it is especially the incarnation that God, as Athanasius put it, uh, God became man so that man might become God, or better understood, man might become divine. Uh, that God, the, the, the whole of scripture is from, from the garden and back to the garden, so that we, we had that fellowship with God, where Adam and Eve can walk with God, and see and talk with him, and then they're banished. And then in the Old Testament, again, as, as was pointed out by uh, the Jacobs here, uh, uh, or Jacob, good grief. <laughs> there, there is, there is another. Uh, anyway, I'm gonna get down a rabbit hole by Jacob. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, thinking of the Holy of Holies, there is this idea that God, you cannot come close to God because if you do, it will kill you. When the Ark is being first brought. Uh, to Jerusalem. That's where David has the procession and he's dancing and then it slips and someone reaches out to grab it and, and to stop it from falling and because he touches it, he falls dead. That throughout the Old Testament, God wants to be near his people, but he can't. It, if the holy God comes into contact with a sinful human being, you die. That's why Isaiah says, woe to me. I'm ruined. This is it. I am dead. But then we have the opposite with Jesus. That Jesus instead touches our flesh by becoming flesh. So that when when there's the, the woman who has the flow of blood problem, she thinks to herself, if I can just, if I can just touch the hem of his robe. And she touches it and the power goes out from Jesus and heals her. And he has to ask, who touched me? Jesus, you're in a crowd. 
people are going to touch you. And then he, he, he singles out the woman and she tells her whole story. And, and Jesus says, your, your faith has healed you. That Jesus taking on flesh means we can, we can touch God now. And instead of killing us, God will save us now by coming into contact with him, which then becomes very special in the Lord's Supper where, where you do take Jesus and like the, the coals touching Isaiah, so now the body and blood of the Son of God touches our lips and takes our sins away. And that this, this mystery of the incarnation, uh, the, the church fathers often refer to it as, as the, the greatest miracle or, or the, the most difficult paradox to understand. There's a, there's a story that one day uh, Luther is in his study and he, you know, he's got his head in his hand and he's kind of looking out the window and he, he stays there the whole day. You can just imagine like a time lapse of the sun going up and then going down and it's towards the end of the day and finally Katie goes into his room and, you know, what are you doing? You've been here all day. What, what are you thinking about? And Luther turns to his wife and he says, I just don't get it. How could God become man? both in terms of the, the, the infinite, transcendent, almighty, all-holy God being a baby who needs to be nursed and changed and taken care of, but also that he would do that to redeem us from sin. That you think about, you know, it's, it's the, the uh, seeing memes before applied to Jesus. It's the, the, the line from Aladdin from the genie, Infinite cosmic power, itty bitty living space. <laughs> that that that's what Jesus is in a sense. That yeah, <laughs> the 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 power that holds the universe together, the the word who spoke it all into being, is now so small you can take it in your arm. You can take him in your arms. That uh, the the one, the one who who made us as human beings who have needs is now one of those human beings who has needs the the amazement of the the creator becoming part of the creation which then there's all kinds of things that touches on like i, I think i had mentioned maybe in another episode the idea of uh christ sanctifying our human experience because he himself has gone through all the the normal things of, of human life or the, the idea that uh, uh, one of the reasons that in Revelation, when uh, John is taking it all in and he's kind of freaking out and there's the angel and he bows down to the angel and the angel says, whoa, 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 D stop. It, it's, theologians have, have posed the idea that it's not just you know, worship God alone, which of course, true. I, I, I shouldn't say that dismissively. That is absolutely true. But it's also this idea that in taking on human flesh, humanity was elevated in its dignity even above angels. Uh, so that there's, there's another story where it's, uh, I, think it's I think it's Luther, that uh, so one day uh, it's, it's a church service and it's the part of the service where they're saying uh, the creed, and uh, 
Satan is there in the church. Don't ask why. Uh, Satan is there in the church, and he's standing next to a guy, and, and it gets to the part of the creed where it's... Uh, 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 now my my brain's wires are crossing between the Nicene and the <laughs> Apostles' Creed, so I have to get the wording right. Uh, and became fully human. It gets to that part of the creed, and uh, normally it was a, it was a tradition back then that at that part everyone would kneel, everyone would bow at the mention of the incarnation, and the guy's just standing there, and Satan kind of elbows him and goes, "Look." I'm God's chief enemy, but if he became an angel to redeem angel kind, even I would take a knee at the mention of that. Uh, the the thought that this is this is such an incredible thing for for God to dignify our humanity by becoming one with us, so that we might become one with Him. If you're a little like uncomfortable, or you find yourself surprised by some of that language about being divine or being like godlike it, it maybe it's fair to say we don't talk that way a ton but if you're looking for uh, just one of several passages that talk about this there, there's uh, second peter uh, 3 and 4 his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. So that you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So there is this <coughs> element of we get kind of holyified, Christified, Jesus liked. Um, in a mystic and hard to talk about way. Um, this is also God's work. Doesn't mean we are going to become gods, or that we're the same as God, but it does mean we're not like regular sinful people anymore. In uh, in Romans and Corinthians, uh, this is tied to the resurrection. So the idea is that so we have Adam number one, and Adam number one falls into sin. And drags all of us with him. And then you have Adam number two, who is Jesus Christ. And he brings all of those who are saved with him into a new humanity. And that in that new humanity, in the same way that we receive our humanness from Adam number one, we receive what we will be like in, in the world to come from Jesus. So this is goes to the idea of him being the firstborn over all creation or, or the first fruits of those who, who rise from the dead, that Jesus is starting a, a, a newness of humanity because when, when the resurrection happens, that's when we'll finally be free from sin. Uh, that, that I think it's in First John that we, we do not know what we'll be like when Jesus comes back, but we know we will be like him. That's the idea. I think this is might be the perfect place to bring in the next phrase in the antiphon, antiphon actually. Um, I thought it was, at first reading, it almost seems out of place. Um, that after announcing God is with us, we then say, 
O Emmanuel, our King and our Lawgiver, the hope of the nations and their Savior. How possibly could, like obviously King and Savior are easily related to Emmanuel, right? God being with us. But how does lawgiver and hope, how can those two concepts be related? Um, And I think that depends to a great degree on our understanding of what the law actually is, right? Uh, I think far too often we get caught up in thinking of the law from a worldly perspective and not from a godliness perspective, if you will. Um, And we forget what purpose the law serves for the one who has now been redeemed, the one who holds salvation in his hands, right? Um, So when I live outside of the grace and forgiveness that is provided to me by the cross of Christ, when I'm not wearing the robe of righteousness, uh, which Jesus took off his own shoulders and placed on mine, the law condemns. The law is an accuser, and it stands, and it points, and it says, you are not good enough. You must be separated from that which is greater than you. You must definitely be separated from that which is greatest. And that's why the law makes us uncomfortable. But as one who wears the righteous robe, which Christ has taken off his own shoulders and placed on mine, the law actually does become hope and a blessing because the man that I am called to be, the man I was created in eternity to be, the man who lives in the kingdom of heaven, of which I even now am a citizen, does have the ability to behave the way I've been called to behave. Now in my sinful state, I cannot, but the moment I pass through this veil and on to the next, I can again. And so what the law does for me while I walk this earth, and feel free to push back if you don't, appreciate some of this language or whatever it might be. Um, But as I walk this earth as a sinful man, what the law does for me is provide me a guidebook for how I might walk and live a perfect life, recognizing I cannot and yet striving to be what I've been called to be in eternity. Um, And that's where the law and hope can walk hand in hand and exist side by side. So one of the one of the first things to say in this discussion is that uh, referring to Christ as lawgiver or lawbearer has a lot of baggage with it. Uh, this is a medieval chant that goes back maybe as early as the 500s. Uh, I don't know about this specific antiphon, but uh, within the medieval church, there arose the idea that Jesus Christ came more as an example who gave us a way to follow than as a savior who freed us from sin. That's not to say they entirely lost the idea. Uh, Sometimes Lutherans are accused of saying that the church ceased to be until Luther and his Bible showed (laughs) up, and that's not at all what I'm saying. I, I still claim to be a part of the same church as St. Augustine and Ambrose and uh, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux and throughout the medieval church, I see a continuity with us and them. But that being said, the idea of Christ as a lawgiver is sometimes taken to mean if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Christ is laying out his expectations for believers. 
and then the the logical leap made from that was that so these are the things we can do to like be super holy to oversimplify hundreds of years of scholarly blah 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 and the the we rightly emphasize against that no <laughs> you cannot earn your way to heaven like that's not that's not on the table in fact we need to remember in that section that Jesus is speaking to believers that it starts with the beatitudes blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be satisfied satisfied by a righteousness that is not their own now in a sense lutherans do believe in salvation by works but not your works the works of jesus christ if we talk about christ as a lawgiver we want to do that acknowledging that jesus is the same god who was at sinai jesus is the same god who has a will that is eternal and good and as you pointed out quite rightly, it is a guide for us on this side of heaven and that we learn from the wisdom of God that he made the world to work as though everyone followed the Ten Commandments. Like that, that is that is the way it is supposed to work. So then you can imagine the the life to come being like the Ten Commandments become laws of physics. You shall have no other gods. That's just the way that it works. You won't have anything else you worship besides the one true God. Uh, but that being said, I, I we can be charitable, but we can also recognize the the term has some baggage. Yeah, yeah. I I think I think we have an odd relationship with the law, and I'm not sure why. Does that make sense? Un unpack that. I think I know where you're going, but unpack that a little more. Um, as a Christian, um, the as as one who knows the story, the law should be that guide, right? Um, the accuser, but a friendly accuser, right? It's an arm around the shoulder, not a gun to the head. And I don't think we often see the law as such as a Christian. This is where I would push back a little bit, that we, we distinguish the purposes of the law. And when the law is accuser, is accuser it is a, an accuser unto damnation. It, it is in, in uh, uh, Luther's hymn, Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice, uh, Uh, I'm missing the words, but uh, 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 left not but but death to be my share and hell to be my sentence. That there there is no hope in the law, a and the the function of the law is to drive us to Christ. That it is a it is a dead end. It is the end of all hope for righteousness on our own. I, I think what I would. Uh, maybe redirect from something I, I, I sense a kin, kindred spirit in your comment with, is that we oversimplified the law down to law bad, gospel good, law make me feel bad, 
make me feel bad, bad. Gospel, make me feel good. Make me feel good, good. And that just becomes a... Uh, the, the way uh, the sainted Professor Deutschlander would put it is, uh, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, and this is all I want to know. That uh, what we were talking about earlier with... Uh, participating in the divine nature or, or union with God or, or just living with Jesus is the idea that you were, you were not just saved in that God pronounced his judgment on you and the verdict came down, not guilty, righteous, innocent, and then he left you on the street curb. No, he brought you into a family. He brought you into a life that has purpose and meaning and fulfillment and glory that that those he he justified he also glorified and that this is this is all one thing that god wants for us is to be glorified and to walk with him and th there is sadly a spiritual malaise that we a, a disease that we we would then look upon the law as though it were bad instead of our sin being the real problem. So that David can say, I delight in the law. I meditate on your statutes. I look at your rules, God, and they're good. And they're amazing. And they're so smart the more I think about them, the, the more I consider them. God, you are good. And certainly we should want to strive after that goodness as much as we can. Because, again, your neighbor needs the fruit. <laughs> he needs to eat that fruit to live. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reassert again, to te both to test my own thought um, against, against your steel, if you will. Um, but then also, I think we might be uh, making the same point. And if we're not, um, that's, that, that's where I want to go. Hey. So... Um, I'm yeah. So the uh, in the same way that uh, I take up my cross, and that cross is in fact a comfort to me, um, while it is a painful cross, and while it leaves me with splinters, and it is a burden to carry, it is a comfort as well, um, and primarily a comfort. Um, the discomfort is a sad and frustrating, but minor um, portion of carrying the cross. Right in the same way. The law continues to accuse, but it continues to accuse as a friend now that I wear the robe of righteousness which Christ wore. Um, because as a friend, the law continues to point me back to my Savior, continues to point my own, uh, continues to point to my own insufficiency, continues to point to my own nature which rebels against God. And as... Um, as a friend, continues to point me back to my Savior, which makes more secure um, the faith which, by which I am saved. Yeah, I, I like the way you say that, Charlie. And, and I know Isaiah that 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 kind of like speaks against the classic Lutheran dogmatic way or dogmatic proposition that the law always accuses and that this is always like ultimate. But like at at some point the you know the the uses of the law are human distinctions um 
even if, even if they are distinctions reflected in the scriptures, like these are distinctions that we've made into kind of categories and then have gotten carried down um, through dogmatics, through dogmatic language. Not to say they're not real and valid, but when I go back to thinking about how the Word of God talks about the law, I have to go to Psalm 119. And when I hear David talking about the law of the Lord, he, I think he often talks with such a tone that it's a law that is like, like a friend. He also talks with terror. He, he talks kind of out of both sides of his mouth, which is why this is hard to talk about. I'll, I'll just read. This is Psalm 119, 17 to 24, Gimel. Be good to your servant while I live, that I may obey your word. Open my eyes, that I might see the wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant who are accursed, those who stray from your commands. Remove me from their scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. Though rulers and slanderers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. Like, he, he will he'll say that, and then in the next sentence, the next part, he'll say, I'm laid down low in the dust. Preserve me. <laughs> you know, he does this kind of, like, vacillating, which is, it, it, I think it's hard for kind of a, uh, a doctrine mind to handle, at least mine. Well, I, 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 um, someone or something which would look me in the eye, declare, um, declare my weakness and provide me the solution, which it does in, in relationship with the gospel, right? It does not do on its own. But um, let me think ahead. Is it? The doctor that di- that diagnoses me with cancer um, pro- provides me with bad news, but can I call him anything other than a friend? And and, and here's the here's the thing. Like it could, it's a it's it, one person and then a, and then a packaged message, both good news and yeah. and, and bad news. And, and it's not it's not the one who diagnoses my sin, who is the enemy. It is the sin. So it's not it's the cancer that's the enemy, not the not the diagnosis. Is that? I think that's where I'm coming from. I like that way of putting it. Yeah, interesting. All right, go ahead. I like whenever I'm trying to think about like all the tension between like justification and sanctification, and if I'm getting really caught up in this, I often give up trying to think about it in any terms but the psalms and then i'll reroute myself in like this is how the psalmist is talking and try and let that form my my pattern of speech and i've got a lot of, of room to grow still but that's that's helpful i'm not correcting your speech no i'm not just at saying all. like as i'm trying to learn how to talk bible uh no i'm in a, i'm in exactly the same spot and that's one of the reasons why um i say things as often as I do the way that I do is so that I might be corrected at where I am wrong. Um, so I appreciate that pushback. So, but the, the point being, right, uh, we would not be able to talk about the law positively whatsoever without the cross of Christ and without the righteousness that um, he earned and we wear. Um, 
which can only happen if he is incarnated as a human and he walks um, and is obedient as a man so that he might be so that he might be my substitute um, so lots and lots of layers of meeting with uh, with Emmanuel I dig it all right for the sake of time we better keep moving on here going to the book of Isaiah unless there's anything else you guys want to toss out there all right let's rock and roll let me spin my screen quick all right here we go reading from Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 through 3 and then 10 and 11 the spirit of the Lord got <laughs> the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of those, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul, my soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations." What a beautiful picture of renewal in a world that desperately needs it. In general, one of the one of the things that stands out in the latter parts of Isaiah is he reflects upon the scene of Israel being desolate and destroyed, whether that's in the context of the Assyrian invasion in his day or prophetically looking ahead to the Babylonian captivity or in general uh, of the state of our sinfulness that he presents these images of a, a barren wasteland of abandoned homes of, of buildings that are falling apart city walls that used to be strong and that in the midst of that scene here comes the renewal here comes the hope here comes your god to to make everything new and salvation is that kind of a picture I really like the idea of owning an orchard called Oaks of Righteousness. And and imagine if at your orchard everyone loved each other and there was no like workroom drama and everyone got along with the boss and there weren't any problems with like when you take vacation or how pay worked and everyone was just at peace in shalom. And this was your place, this Oaks of Righteousness orchard. And everyone asked, like, why, why is everything different here? Because we've got the Lord's salvation. He has caused righteousness to sprout up among us. I have, um, for some reason, have always kind of latched onto that. that I'm not going to say for some reason. I'm going to explain why. For this I'm reason. Because I'm articulate. Anyway, uh, the... I've always enjoyed the picture of Oaks of Righteousness, right? Um, and particularly 
um, particularly up here in the Midwest, um, historically, oaks were planted on tree lines um, and in fields um, for about 150 to 200 years after these areas were settled. Basically, they leveled all of the forests and they planted um, farms. Now, if you are tending your farm, if you're plowing out in the field uh, with a horse-drawn plow, um, you need some place to rest throughout the day. And an elm tree or a cottonwood tree or an ash tree isn't going to cut it for a couple of different reasons, not the least of which is the winds really blow in the wintertime. Um, they don't grow big enough and tall enough. Um, they require too much help from other from other living things in order to grow and survive. Uh, for example, a pine tree is going to make the ground acidic and doesn't provide a lot of shade. An oak tree is the perfect tree to grow in such a place out in a field in the middle of nowhere because it is strong enough and hard enough to withstand the winds. Um, the leaves fall off in the wintertime so it can withstand the, the winter winds and the ice and snow that rest upon it. Uh, because it's a hardwood, which is also flexible, it can flex and bow when things like tornadoes come along, when heavy rains fall, so on and so forth. They grow very, very slowly, um, and so they adapt to weather patterns and wind and things like that over time, and they are incredibly hard to kill. And so if you have, they call them heritage oaks or century oaks, if you have one of those on your property, it is literally priceless. You can get them insured. You can get these trees insured because they are so valuable, so rare, so important, and such a strong piece of, all, of our cultural history as Midwesterners. Now, think about a person who we could then call an oak of righteousness. A person who growing slowly over time has withstood many winters, many difficulties, a few storms and tornadoes, has seen the sun come up and the sun come down, has borne great weight and continued to grow, has seen droughts and not been dry, and not been uh, has not died of thirst, has seen famine and not gone hungry, and has continued to grow. And now, as it approaches the end of its life, stands as an oak, providing shade to those who toil and labor beneath it, and rest to those who are weary, and so forth. What a wonderful picture of what a godly life looks like. A picture like that allows me, and I, I imagine others, to pray, thy will be done, and mean it. What do I mean? I mean that there is immense, sometimes immediate, and often even earthly meaning in trial, tribulation, suffering, things that would, you know, famine, right? That would make you an oak, that kind of uh, set of crosses that the, the Lord would allow, things that drive you into God's word, things that drive you, drive your roots down, right? Like this. This makes a, a, a person, a man, stronger and more ready to be an oak for his community or family or all the, all the rest. And so you can pray, thy will be done, even if that means crosses. I would push that even further and ask, what is it that 
uh, particularly here in Isaiah 61, what is it that is um, causing, you know, ca uh, enabling uh, the headdress to be put on instead of ashes, do oil of gladness instead of mourning, um, which is allowing um, the, the oaks to grow, which is uh, making the earth bring forth sprouts, so on and so forth. What is it? Verse 1 says, The Spirit of God has come upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That's hoyan galitza, right? That's the proclamation of the gospel. The Spirit of the Lord and the proclamation of the gospel is what makes this oak grow to become what it is. It inevitably makes us think of Psalm 1, that to, to be uh, a tree beside good water is to be planted in God's word and, and to hear God's word and to receive from God that which makes us spiritually alive. And then, of course, have to mention that uh, the, the start of this section, uh, particularly uh, verse, uh, yeah, verse 1, uh, Jesus quotes in, in Luke 4. So you can imagine it's, it's a day at church and the the young new rabbi in town uh, is preaching his first sermon and he gets up and he reads this text and it's it's this you know beautiful section that people know and then he starts his sermon and he says hey guys that's me oh. <laughs> <laughs> that that uh, it, it is amazing to think about Jesus preaching the gospel, uh, telling all the people that he is the fulfillment of what they've been waiting for, uh, to, to connect this uh, back with the name Emmanuel. Uh, it's mentioned in the Matthew account, which focuses more on Joseph than it does Mary in, in that short account of the nativity. And one of the thoughts that's always struck me is, you know, it mentions that Joseph is a righteous man. He is a pious Jew who, who would have read the scriptures, who would have heard them in synagogue. And uh, just my iPad. Ouch. Tumbling down. Uh, <laughs> while, uh, while Charlie fixes the walls of Jericho. Um, the, the thought for Joseph that he would have known those scriptures and then the angel comes to him and says remember that Emmanuel promise that baby in Mary is him and then for for Joseph to to take Jesus in his arms and thinking about all of the promises that have led to this moment being from the house of David it, it's kind of his family's fault that the situation in Israel is what it is because they led the people astray because men like Ahaz from whom Joseph came led God's people in wrong ways and, and, and thinking of his rejection of God's promise and now despite all of that here's here's the grace of God in his arms uh, and that little boy that the, the little baby grows up and becomes then the Jesus who preaches in Luke 4 and says yes that's me and here's the message. I am coming for your salvation to save all of you, to bring you from darkness into light, to bring you from captivity into freedom. This is it. And there's something 
in that 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 makes us tremble that's amazing there's there's also something to be said for for understanding uh the difficulty of following jesus which is that there was nothing attractive in his appearance that that we should want him that that he comes and he just he does just seem like a normal guy he is not always glowing like in the transfiguration he just seems like a guy who teaches well and yet then to think that but no that is the fulfillment and it is through such humble things that God saves the world and continually gives us spiritual life day after day does not look like much to to see someone with an open Bible but that is the Almighty God pouring life. When I think about the Luke 4 story and he says, look, this is being fulfilled in your presence. I think about the movie Captain Phillips and maybe you've seen the meme. Look at me. Look at me. (laughs) I am the promise now. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I could think. I like that. I'm the promise now. Well, it's easy to gloss over that idea. Like, what is really being like? He's uh, to preach good news, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart. Blah blah blah. The good news isn't that there's free ice cream in a calf, right? The good news isn't that there's new shoes for everybody, right? The good news isn't rain is coming. The good news is something which makes those things look comically small. The good news is some like what an understatement to call it good news, right? Um, What is being proclaimed is a simple, clear message which absolutely changes the world. I got the opportunity today um, for evangelism class to go through God's Great Exchange, and I have rolled my eyes sometimes with the whole God's Great Exchange um, uh, approach um, because it is not particularly practical, I don't think. What it does, though, is provide a very simple model to convey some very powerful, the most powerful of messages. Um, and that really struck me as I was, I mean, just talking about what, sometimes we lose the forest for the tree. Or, yeah, we lose the forest for the trees, right? We talk about the particulars of, of what sin and grace looks like and what our walk with our Heavenly Father looks like, what sanctification looks like. But tonight we're going to find the oaks in the forest. That's right. I'm sorry. Well, but we've like the it is a simple, powerful truth. God became flesh. He lived in my place. Not only was a perfect man, was perfect at being a man, chose to give himself up to die. The moment his life, the moment he gave up his life, the power of death is broken, and I live in fear no longer. And I will get to be with him. One of the one of the fun elements in this Isaiah section that describes what he's doing, describes all the things you just said, is in verse 2, he says, I'm going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's a reference to the year of Jubilee, which is just a really fun thing. It's talked about in Leviticus 25. So after the 49th year and the 50th year of Israel's uh, cycle, all the debts would be forgiven. Servants would be released or freed. Sometimes even prisoners, it, it, it seems, would be 
would be let go or, or some kind of debt would be dropped from a charge. In other words, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor means to tell everybody everyone's forgiven. It's all paid for. And so when Jesus says, I'm doing this, this and is what of I'm no doing. merit of their own. Yeah, it's just because God decided this is what we do. And that's where, when uh, Jesus says, you know, the, the truth will set you free, the Pharisees take umbrage at that. Wait a minute. We were in slavery in Egypt, but, but we've never been slaves. And how, how can you say this? And, and then Jesus says that, well, if you, if you sin, you are a slave to sin. That uh, it, is, it is a message we resist out of our own pride. No, I I don't need to be saved. I'm 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 fine. Are you really now? <laughs> and juxtapose that attitude against the the picture of a bride and a bridegroom uh-huh. down below, yes. right? Uh, so verses uh, ten and eleven. Well, mostly verse ten. I mean, just think about if you ever been ar- around a bride or a groom, um, the day they're getting married, um, particularly ones who uh, you know have gone about it the proper way. Um, yeah, well, you know what I mean. I, 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 I know. Uh, but, but, well, but also, like, they haven't been living with each other. Like, because everyone, I, frankly, I've been to a few weddings where it was like, we really have to go through all this hassle. Like, we're basically right. married already. Right. Like, what, what really? I, where you have the groom in the back of the church before the service going, well, nothing's really going to change just because we did all this, right? I'm not talking about that kind of a wedding, right? That to clarify my statement. But the joy and the excitement, the jubilee to use the words of 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 isaiah um of both bride and groom as they adorn themselves and get ready for that ceremony that is the joy and excitement with which um we prepare to see our king it's a shame i had to get all teary-eyed and talk about the wedding analogy last week (laughs) i on a side note i didn't know until tonight that umbrage was a real word and that it meant like offense, annoyance, or displeasure. Did you Google that after I said it? I did, and now Harry Potter makes a whole lot more sense <laughs> with Professor Umbridge and why they are, like you know they can't stand her because she's Professor Annoyance. I had no idea. I'm glad I could expand your vocabulary. Speaking of Umbridge, I'm going to get back to my point. <laughs> I'm teasing. Um, but, so, here, here's a fun another fun tie. <laughs> uh, yeah. Tie is the key here. Uh, anyway, um, what Umbridge. is what is one of the greatest like what just for for me personally? What's one of the most fun things about church on Easter, not Easter? Well, Easter or or Christmas, right? Is I mean, most of the time you got a couple old guys wearing shirts and ties, but most of the time people kind of come as they are for church, and there's nothing wrong with that. But f- almost everyone gets dressed up for church on Christmas, and of course we do, and Easter too. Of course we do. It's just another service. It's the same church you've been going to every week in and out for years. Why? What's so special about this one? How come I put on my shirt and tie and get all festive for this service on this day? There's other festivals. We go to church on Wednesday nights throughout Lent. I show up in T-shirt and jeans because that's what I wore to work. What makes this one so special? Because you're the bride. Because you're the bride. Yeah. Because the king is coming, right? 
because the baby's in the manger, because God is here, and that is worth getting excited about. I'm excited. Let's have Christmas. Yeah, I'm pumped too. I'm pumped too. So you said, Isaiah, you said you're preaching on Easter, or not Easter, on Christmas. Says since Christmas falls on a Sunday this year, you're you're preaching on Christmas Eve morning. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay, that's exciting. What's your text? Uh, it's actually the Matthew one text. <laughs> All uh, right. So the the theme will be Emmanuel, God is with us, and that this is this is an unbelievable gift, but it's exactly what we need. The the thought that. Uh, Reflecting on Christmas as a kid, uh, I don't know about you two, but speaking for myself, I would be so excited for Christmas. I would, I would, I would get just so unbelievably ready to to run downstairs and open all the gifts under the tree. Uh, I wouldn't be able to fall asleep, <laughs> and then I'd be angry at myself that I couldn't sleep. Uh, and then to finally have that in the morning and, and come running down and, and just the the sheer joy of it, what it was. But over the years, I do not have that same excitement anymore. <laughs> but, but believe it or not, uh, celebrating Christmas now, uh, it's not as many presents. It's, it's not as well decorated. Um, this year it'll just be me and dad at home. There's almost something kind of somber to it. And to take Christmas and to really unpack the gift of the baby in the manger and see this is everything that I need. That all of the hopes and dreams that I might have for this life, all of the pain and wounds that I carry all of the the difficulties that the answer is here in this little child the the one who put the stars into place is now this little child that that the one who spoke the universe into being is now so seemingly helpless and here he is for me and here he is, so that I might live with him forever. That for him, this journey was all worth it. A and on Christmas, then, the real joy uh, is in opening that gift. We reflect that by the gifts we share with each other. But that we need to take the time and open the gift that matters. Because our souls need it. Because if we try to subsist on all the other gifts, those things eventually break or pass away in some way or another. But Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ lives forever. And because he lives, you also will live. Sounds like you got that sermon ready, man. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. So here's a, I'm going to test this, right? This just Ooh, popped into my head. Test it. This just popped into my head as you were speaking. Okay, imagine you come down for come down for Christmas morning, right? There's a giant package. Just one wall of the house is just covered in wrapping paper, and you wonder what could this gift be? What gift this big could possibly come on Christmas? And as you tear down the wrapping paper, 
It's revealed it's not a wall at all. But gates swinging open, and there is the uh-huh. yellow, bri- yellow brick road, right? But it's no yellow brick road. It's the streets of gold. And the gates of heaven have been opened to you. That's the gift we get on Christmas. You should save that. That's good. Yeah. Uh, I also couldn't help but, uh, was it Gerhardt wrote, Oh, Jesus Christ, your manger is. Mm-hmm. I like the old English translation a little bit better. Um, oh, Jesus Christ, thy manger is the paradise at which my soul reclineth. For there, O oh Lord, doth lie the word made flesh for us. Therein thy grace forth shineth. Right? I love that idea of paradise. Is right here next to the manger. I don't need it anywhere else. Awesome. Jacob, what are you preaching on? I'm not preaching for Christmas. Oh, you're preaching for I, the wedding. That's right. Yep. I preached uh, last Sunday, and then I don't preach again until the end of January, actually. So I'm going to go to Christmas with my family and uh, Christmas Eve to see my cousins. It'll be awesome. Well, frankly, it's probably the last Christmas for a good long time. You're not going to be heavily involved. So Yes. Might be nice to kind of relax. I will enjoy, enjoy it. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I dig it. All right, cool. I'm doing uh, Christmas Eve candlelight, which will be a little sermonette. Um, and uh, I haven't decided. I've got my two options are, um, uh, was it Isaiah uh, Emmanuel? Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7. Uh, either Isaiah 7 or Luke 2. Um, and uh, I think I was leaning towards Isaiah 7, but I think it might end up being Luke 2 um, because I want my theme to be we want to see the baby. Right. You've said that a lot lately. I, I like the way you say that. The excitement. Yep. We want to see, like, give us the baby. Yeah. <laughs> we want to see the baby. And and at some point, um, the transition to the to the final thought will be something to the effect of, I hate to break it to you, but there's no baby here today. There's a little porcelain, porcelain doll over there, but it's not the Savior. Your Savior is here, though, which is why I, it could be Isaiah, too. But your Savior is here, and he is coming. And when he does, when you do finally see him face to face, it won't be a baby in a manger. When he does come back, he will be, you know, uh, one of my favorite Christmas songs. This is absolutely worth looking up and listening to. Um, is uh, in the first light um, by Glad. It's a cappella Christmas. Um, in the first light of the new day, nobody, no one knew he had arrived. Uh, things continued as they had been while a newborn soft, softly cried. Uh, but the heavens, wrapped in wonder, knew the w- or, yeah, knew the meaning of his birth. Um, uh, that in the weakness of a baby, God had come to earth. But the last verse then is, um, hear the angels as they're singing, um, on the morning of his birth. But how much greater shall his song be, or shall our song be, when he comes again to earth? Um, and, uh, first of all, the music is phenomenal, but that how my heart yearns and longs for that day and, uh, how I, the, I just can't wait to sing that song for all of eternity. It's beautiful. Awesome. It's, it's totally worth looking up. Um, I love it. It, it is, it's probably my most listened to Christmas song every single year. It's phenomenal. So. Awesome. Gentlemen, I really I really am thankful that you guys are willing to do to do this little series here. I had a ton of fun. Um, it has also been an excellent uh, way to keep me kind of grounded throughout the Advent season. It's wild around here. Not so much this week and next. 
um speak for yourself well but yeah, but man. that's more so but that's more so just like finishing up projects not like running around like chickens with our heads cut off right uh we got a lot fewer places to be and more just getting things finished up now uh, but especially the earlier part of december the first two two and a half three weeks of december can get a little wild so it was good to be forced to sit down and spend some time in the word and to have some good conversation outside of the academic calendar there so I, I really do appreciate it. I hope it's been a blessing to you who are listening as well. Uh, Jacob and Isaiah, I wish you a very, very Merry Christmas, um, a very blessed New Year. I'm very excited to uh, see what the future holds. You guys have one semester left at the seminary. Woo! I know. Yep. I can imagine. I, I'm not in your shoes yet, but I can imagine it's, 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 it's a bittersweet feeling. Right? I have to remember not to look at the call list <laughs> Be- because it, it's not – all that useful uh, or productive and it wouldn't put me in the right servant frame of mind but yeah. it is awfully exciting for for me it's just incredibly surreal you know this is eight years in the making and i i i have i have a countdown on my phone oh no, on, on my home it? screen and it's there every time i look so currently we are sitting at Five months, twelve days, twenty hours, and three thousand five hundred forty-eight seconds until call day. It's because the widget is not big enough to show minutes and seconds, so it oh, does gotcha. that. Oh, uh, gotcha. I don't know how to change it, but I'm <laughs> fine. It's fine. It's awesome. Uh, it it is, it is incredible time of year. Uh, even though all of the work is a strain, it's also a joy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, from from my own heart. I certainly wish both of you gentlemen a very Merry Christmas, as well as to any listeners. And again, just the, the, the wholehearted encouragement, unpack the gift of the incarnation and, and worship that little baby in the manger. I love it. Hard to say it better than that, but Merry Christmas to everybody. Awesome. We will hopefully uh, get a Christmas extravaganza off the ground for next week. Very, very different vibe uh, than these last couple have been. Uh, But if you enjoyed last year's Christmas Spectacular, um, you will certainly enjoy this one as well. Um, No promises, but it looks like we're going to get it off the ground. Uh, If we do so, we'll, of course, talk about the reading from Matthew 6, since that's not in the pericope um, for Christmas itself this year so uh, we're going to talk about that and uh, all kinds of fun things as well so uh, no matter what merry christmas gentlemen god's blessings on the new year go be the minute god created you to be we will talk to you sometime soon On behalf of all those involved in producing, recording, editing, and distributing this episode, thank you for listening to the Gird Up Podcast. If you'd like to contact us with comments, questions, or suggestions, you can reach out to us at any of the links in the description below or on our website. Please consider supporting the work of Gird Up Ministries by donating on Patreon, shopping at our online store, or making a $5 cup of coffee donation at www.girdupministries.com. Those donations help us make more great content just like this for young men just like you. Make sure you like, friend, follow, and subscribe to Gird Up and all of our guests on your social media platforms and consider leaving a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to the Gird Up podcast so that others can find us and be blessed by our content too. As always, thanks for listening. Now go 
and be the man that God created you to be. We'll see you next time.